Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. We've got a great episode for you this week. First, Professor Scott Miller is going to fill us in on what's to be seen in the night sky this February. There's five planets out there this month, and that's including a very cool alignment of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So look out for that. And then I want to update you on what scientists are doing to prevent the further spread of this new coronavirus that emerged in Wuhan, China this winter. So first, the February sky. Scott here. February brings us farther from the date of shortest daylight back in late December, which happens to be astronomical beginning of winter, and closer to the first day of spring, astronomically around the 20th of March. That means that we are gaining a bit more daylight, and conversely a bit less night, as we slowly trudge toward summer. For those of us interested in seeing the night sky, that means we have a bit longer to wait in the evening to do so. Still, getting dinner out of the way and heading out at dusk this month, especially early in the month, can lead to some discoveries. Mercury is one of those tempting discoveries. Mercury is generally found just east or just west of the sun, either in evening skies or in morning skies, respectively. On February 9th, Mercury will be at its greatest eastern elongation, meaning it is at its greatest separation east of the sun. This means it is visible just as dusk begins in the evening skies. A clear western horizon and clear skies, of course, may allow one to spot it as a star-like object. Mercury should not be confused with Venus, already making itself visible in early twilight. Venus may even be of help finding Mercury, as a line from Venus down toward the horizon to about where the sun set, usually the brightest area above the horizon at dusk, should pass by Mercury. The stars making up constellations in that part of the sky are not overly bright, so Mercury should be that star one sees above the horizon. This might be a good time to practice some handy measurement techniques. That is, how one can use one's hand to measure angles in the sky. I found the following example on a website called timeanddate.com. No spaces between the words. A handy way to measure distances. Hold your hand at arm's length and close one eye. Make a fist with the back of your hand facing you. The width of your fist will approximately be 10 degrees. This means that any two objects that are on the opposite ends of your fist will be 10 degrees apart. The North Star, Polaris, and Doobie, one of the northern pointers of the Big Dipper, are three fists apart. That means that angular distance or angular separation between those two stars is 30 degrees. Open your fist, stretch out your little finger and thumb as far as you can, and curl down the rest of your fingers. The tip of your little finger and your thumb will span about 25 degrees. The Big Dipper spans about 25 degrees. The tip-to-tip span between your index finger and your little finger is 15 degrees. Your three middle fingers will span about 5 degrees. Your little finger at arm's length is about 1 degree. 
It is important to note that such measurements are approximate. Not everyone has the same sized hand. So, for example, going back to Mercury, if one is out about 6.30 or so with a clear western horizon, extending your arm and making a fist, resting your fist on the horizon, if you will, Mercury should be at or just above your fist off the horizon. For the adventurous, one could imagine placing fist over fist about three times off the horizon and reaching Venus at about the same time that evening. With Venus helping to identify the direction west, I can slowly turn to my left, facing toward the southern sky. High up in the southeast is the pattern of stars known as Orion the Hunter. I have mentioned Orion in previous broadcasts, but as it is the dominant winter constellation, I will take the time to connect its stars to the figure making up the constellation. Three close stars forming a straight line catch people's eyes at this time of year because it is kind of rare when one sees randomly scattered stars across the sky and you have three in a row. These three stars are the belt stars making the waste of Orion. As darkness continues to come on, one might see what appears to be three more stars just south of the belt. This marks a sword that Orion carries there. From there, two bright stars stand out. North of the belt is a reddish-colored star called Betelgeuse. This star and a dimmer one west of it called Bellatrex mark the shoulders of this giant hunter. A dim star about midway between these two and just off that line could mark his head. South of the belt is another bright star, Rigel. It is sort of bluish-white in appearance. It can be thought of as the left knee of the giant, assuming that is, Orion is facing us. East of Rigel is the dimmer star Saif, which is located below the belt stars on the same side as Betelgeuse. One can picture this as the other knee. This pattern in the sky took on many guises to many cultures throughout history. Native Americans had their version of a story about this group of stars. According to the Tiwi, a tribe of North America, the constellation of Orion was their hero Longsash, named for the long belt he wore. Longsash was a wise and loved leader and led his people in a time of great peace and prosperity. But then the crops died. There was sickness and famine. Their enemies were attacking. The people asked Longsash to lead them to better lands. Longsash thought for a moment and replied, My people, times are bad now, but things may yet improve. If you wish to go on this journey, the way will be long and dangerous. Stop. Think. Ask yourselves. Do you want to take that risk? But the people were firm and had Long Sash lead them on this dangerous journey. As they traveled, there would be the occasional arguments, sometimes leading to fights. This saddened Long Sash. He pleaded with his people to stop hurting each other. He built two campfires to be places of decision. I will build two campfires, he said, and whenever you have a problem with one of your brothers or sisters, Go to these two campfires and talk about your problems peacefully. The stars that form the heads of the Gemini the twins are those two campfires, the place of decision-making. Long Sash wanted to remind his people that real choices are seldom easy. Sometimes one path or decision may look brighter or easier than the other, but that doesn't always mean it's the best way to go. Guided by this wisdom, the people continued their journey until they reached a land so new not even Long Sash had seen it before. This was the middle place, called Earth, and it would be their new home. The people settled down, they had children and grew old, but Long Sash knew he wasn't going to be with his people forever. So he said, 
In the sky I will place my headdress as a bright, comforting cluster of stars. So, should you ever need to be reminded of my wisdom, look upon these stars and think of me. The headdress is a group of stars called the Pleiades. When he died, his remains appeared in the sky to watch over his people. Not all that is interesting and easy to see can be found in the evening sky. The morning skies of mid-February also holds a treat. Get up early on February 17th to see a lineup of three planets and the moon. At dawn, the crescent moon, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn will form a line in the southeastern sky. Before sunrise on the next day, February 18th, viewers can watch the moon occult Mars. An early start may be needed to see the two side by side, the crescent moon just to the right of Mars. But as dawn commences and stars begin to fade, one might be able to glimpse the moon slowly move between us and Mars, making it disappear just as the sun begins to rise. So February may be the shortest month of the year, even when adding the extra day this year. But it holds more than a couple of interesting things to see both in the evening and in the morning skies. All one needs is the availability of clear skies and the willingness to get outside away from the technology that distracts us. You're currently listening to Bench Talk, the week in science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm sure you've heard about the SARS-related coronavirus that is now one of the top news stories these days. This is a virus that first showed up in Wuhan, China, which is a city of 11 million people, and it showed up back on December 1st, 2019. That's when the first person was infected by this virus. Now it's sickened thousands of people across the globe, and as of this date, has led to the death of more than 170 people, mostly the young and the old, and those with weakened immune systems. Now, coronaviruses can cause the common cold, but they can also cause SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, as well as MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. This new virus, though, is the seventh type of coronaviruses that researchers know of that all cause respiratory problems in humans. And I'm not going to try to keep up with the story because it's evolving so fast. But what I would like to do today is highlight for you the role that science has had in trying to understand this disease and try to stave it off. Well, it was just last week, January 10th, 2020, that it was announced that scientists had determined the entire genome of the Wuhan virus. It's an RNA virus, and it's almost 30,000 bases long, making it quite similar to the SARS virus, which killed 774 people in 2002 and 3. 
But whereas it took five months to determine the RNA sequence of the SARS virus, that killer, this time it only took four weeks. And now they don't just have the sequence of this new virus as it occurred in one person. Now they have the sequence from 24 individual patients. That's amazing. Now there's a lot of advantages to figuring out the genome of a virus like this. First of all, it could serve as a diagnostic tool in case you just want a way to determine that it is this strain of coronavirus that a person actually is infected with and not some other. Also, it's kind of like a snapshot of the virus. Researchers will be able to determine the mutation rate of this virus by comparing future genome sequences with the one that they just finished. And that's because this virus could evolve into something that's more infectious or it could evolve into something more toxic. This information could also be used to eventually develop a vaccine for this virus or it could be used to design an effective treatment for people infected by the virus or to even prevent infection. What I mean is that pharmaceutical scientists could use this data to develop a plug drug this would be a molecule, a synthetic molecule, that somehow interferes with the recognition site between virus and human cell, or maybe it interferes with the replication of the virus. The most popular medicine for treating influenza was designed this way. It's called Tamiflu. Tamiflu was actually just designed on the computer back in the beginning of the research cycle. The scientists looked at the shape of the biomolecules that they wanted, and they designed them on the computer, figured out what shape might fit into a certain notch on a protein. Then they designed chemicals to bind to it. That's why they call it a plug drug. And then it's just a question of synthesizing different variations of that molecule and testing each one to see which one works the best. Understanding the genome of this virus also helps researchers pinpoint the possible source of the disease and how it's evolving. Now this particular coronavirus looks like it first emerged sometime between October 30 and November 29, 2019, sometime in the month of November of last year. The first report of an infection was December 8th, that's following the incubation period after infection. And it appears that the change from an animal to animal infectious agent to an animal to human infectious agent and then a human-to-human -human agent occurred only once. And they can determine that because they've looked at all 24 different strains or sequences that they found in different patients, and they all appear to be derived from a single precursor, one infection event. The Wuhan coronavirus sequence is 97% identical to a coronavirus that occurs in fruit bats that live in this region of China. So it's very likely that it's the bats that are the original source of this now human virus. Bats are apparently just seething with coronaviruses. There's some 50 different strains of coronaviruses that have been found in bats. SARS was originally found in bats too. So it could be that people wandered into a bat-dwelling cave in this area and somehow came in contact with the bat feces because the virus is passed through the intestine into the feces in a bat. But it could also be that the bat somehow infected a farm animal of some type, like a pig or a chicken, and then the virus spread from those animals to humans. And then apparently Chinese also eat a soup 
made from the entire body of bats, bat soup, which means that the kitchen staff could have been exposed to the virus in the bats when they were preparing the soup. And then there's the possibility that infected bats or infected pigs were brought to open markets in Wuhan, and it spread to people from the marketplace. I got to tell you, though, the Lancet Journal published a paper on January 24th, 2020, just a few days ago, about the earliest patients that were hospitalized with the coronavirus. Out of the 41 patients they interviewed, only 66% said that they had actually walked through the market in town. And it wasn't the earliest patients who wandered through the market. It was the later ones, leading one researcher to claim, quote, the virus came into that market before it came out of that market, unquote, meaning that people might have caught it there simply because other people infected with the virus went into the market and possibly spread it to others. So it doesn't really look like the first infections from animal to human actually occurred in the Wuhan market. The authors of the Lancet paper apparently thought that the government of China knew this too, but that the government really was sticking with this market story as the source of animal-to-human transmission, even though they knew it wasn't really the case. And you'll still hear the news media saying that it was the market in Wuhan that's the source of initial infection, but it might not be. Ironically, the city where this new coronavirus first erupted, Wuhan, it's the only place in China right now that actually has a biosafety level 4 laboratory facility. BSL-4 facilities are the safest places on Earth for studying diseases like Ebola and the Marburg virus. If you're a lab worker in a BSL-4 facility, you're wearing full-body protective suits, masks. You have to go through both a chemical shower and a personal shower every time you leave the building. Biosafety Level 4 laboratory facilities have very high standards for safety because they're dealing with the most infectious, toxic viruses out there. Now, you actually don't need a BSL-4 facility to study coronaviruses. You could use BSL-3 laboratories to study things like SARS and MERS, which are also coronaviruses. A BSL-3 laboratory has less rigorous operating procedures. University of Louisville has two BSL-3 facilities on its campus. Now, there are only 13 BSL-4 labs in the United States, like at the Center for Disease Control, and a bunch of them are run by the Pentagon. So for Wuhan to have the only one in China, it's a pretty big deal. Now, I've seen some articles on the web about the possibility that this Wuhan coronavirus might just be an escapee from this BSL-4 lab. But at this point, I would say that idea is unsubstantiated, and it's more of a conspiracy theory than anything else. I think what's important is that Wuhan has the facilities to study this new coronavirus. It's already got the technology and the brain power to study this thing, so that's great. Even though it's only been six weeks or so, researchers already know how the virus gets into our cells. It latches onto this human enzyme called the angiotensin converting enzyme 2, ACE2. That's the same entry port into our body that the SARS viruses uses. Now that they know this, they might be able to design some sort of a plug drug that blocks this ACE2 binding site. So scientists are working hard in the lab, in the hospital, in the clinic, 
to resolve the challenges faced by this new viral disease. But now, not only are they working in those places, but it turns out that scientists are actually pushing policy, too. Apparently, the government of China was very slow to respond to this new disease. By January 6, doctors recognized the disease, but it took 10 days more before the government made screening kits available to hospitals. And it appears that the government of China knew about the high infectivity of this virus long before they actually warned the public about it. Maybe it's the classic story of government not wanting to panic the public or being too embarrassed, but it wasn't the government who first told the public about what was going on. It was the scientists. It was on January 20th that scientists were on TV finally confirming that human-to-human transmission of this virus was possible, and that unlike SARS, this virus could be transmitted between people before they actually showed symptoms of the disease. It was the scientists, not the government officials. Unfortunately, by then, it's estimated that 5 million people had already left Wuhan. They left by car, train, bus, airplane, And even after the January 20th announcement by researchers, the government didn't stop this travel out of the city for three more days. So this allowed for numerous infected people to leave Wuhan, travel around the world, including the United States, and spread the infectious agent far and wide. Now we're all left facing this problem. Well, since recording this story a couple days ago, I now have a postscript to add. I guess that's what you get when you try to catch a falling knife, I guess. This story is developing so fast. But there was a paper published on January 31st in the open source online journal called BioRxiv about this situation. Now, the articles published in this journal are not peer-reviewed, so I can't really comment about the veracity of the research. Now, this paper was written by a group of scientists at the Indian Institute of Technology and the University of Delhi in India, and it reports on four insertions into the genome of this new coronavirus that are very similar to what has been found in the HIV-1 virus that causes AIDS. These four insertions are in a region that codes for the spike glycoprotein, which are proteins that mediate binding of the virus to susceptible host cells. And it also induces uptake of the virus by the cell, so it is important. What the researchers did was gather all of the coronavirus protein sequences that are available in the gen bank and compared it to the protein sequences derived from the genomic sequences of the new coronavirus that I mentioned a few minutes ago. The best match of the Wuhan strain was to the SARS virus, but the authors include an alignment showing four regions where there were amino acid residues that are present in the Wuhan virus that were not present in the SARS virus. They vary from 6 to 12 amino acids in length. All four of these inserted sequences match one of two gene sequences found in the HIV protein. None of the other coronaviruses apparently have these HIV regions. Now, two of the shorter inserts match HIV-1 exactly, but the other two only show a 42% and an 80% match to the HIV sequence. I do have to say, that's not a very good match, really, 42 to 80%. Even the two areas that match 100% 
are only six amino acids long. That's not very long. The authors predict that three of these regions would fold together in such a way that the resulting protein would be functional. The authors argue that the odds are against all four of these HIV-like sequences to show up in this coronavirus naturally, but now social media has caught on to this information and is throwing around the idea that perhaps this new virus is a result of genetic engineering, maybe as a bioweapon, or that it's an escape from that BSL-4 facility in Wuhan. But this particular paper does not actually state that. They do say that the incidence of these HIV sequences are probably not there fortuitously, and that, quote, taken together, our findings suggest unconventional evolution of this virus, and that it warrants further investigation, unquote. But then tonight, Sunday, February 2nd, I see that the article in BioRxiv has already been retracted by the authors. They claim that their report is being misinterpreted and that they want to reanalyze the data and their interpretation and publish it again later. In my opinion, if this is supposed to be a bioweapon, it's not a very good one. It's not a very lethal one because the mortality rate, last I heard, is only 2%. 98% of those people infected with the new coronavirus have the symptoms of a common cold, but they live. The coronavirus that causes the common cold, the one that we're routinely exposed to every year, that causes 4% mortality, whereas this new one causes only 2% mortality. So, so far, this new coronavirus might have a lower mortality rate than even the common cold. But let's just see how all of this unwinds. Infection rates drop precipitously in the warmer months, so let's just hope that Punxsutawney Phil, that weather-predicting groundhog in Pennsylvania, is correct this year that we will have an early spring so that this disease can just go away. Unfortunately, Punxsutawney Phil is only accurate like 39% of the time, which means flipping a coin would be more accurate than that groundhog. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky.
where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.